Um, so last week, we had the privilege of being introduced to the book of 1 Peter by Dr. Ruth Ann Reese, one of my personal favorite seminary professors. Hope you guys enjoyed her being with us as well. She joined us again on Monday night, which means I had the gift of hearing her words twice. And one of the things that really stuck out to me was just how appropriate this book is for our current season of Eastertide. So I said last week, and I'll say again, that Eastertide is a continuing celebration of the resurrection of Jesus and the fact that it changes everything, right? We are in a season now where we are digging deep roots into the hope and the joy of the reality that God is making all things new, starting with Jesus and even reaching to our daily lives. And in fact, that's what this book is about. At its heart, this book is Peter's practical but also theologically sound guide to what being made new lives look like every day if we really embrace our true identity. So to help us dive into today's passage, I want to first bring back before us three big takeaways from what Dr. Reese shared last week. She kind of opened the whole book, and so we're just going to review that together today. First, this book is written to exiles, or the language the book uses is resident aliens. Kind of cool, you know, a little trendy there. It's written to people who don't belong, right? So exiles, slaves, women without believing husbands, that one might be a little weirder to us, but think about the fact that those women likely have even less influence than other women since they don't agree with the head of their household. So all of these groups have been seen as the least in their society. Second, even though all of those people have received labels and identity from their culture, their true identity is now as a member of the family of God. Together, as the community of the church, they have been chosen, and they belong with God and with one another. And third, as members of the family of God, they have also been gifted an imperishable inheritance. And that's a phrase that just means it's not going to rot or decay, and nothing can destroy or devalue that inheritance. Instead, it's kept in the presence of God. And Peter's not really detailed about what it is, but I think that we can assume, and from what Dr. Reese said last week, that that inheritance is the enduring promise we have of delight and well-being and deep communion with God and one another in the fullness of the kingdom of God. So even though we're going to have a mixed bag of emotions and experiences in this life, joy and suffering, gratitude and grief, trial and triumph, our inheritance is sure and safe. We have it in part, and it's coming to us in full. Okay, so we're going to review that real quick on a slide. The big three things were taken away. The book is written to an audience of the least who don't belong. A reminder of the true identity given in Jesus, member of the family of God. And these people have received an imperishable inheritance. Everything else in the book assumes and builds upon these ideas. In fact, in our passage for this week, Peter doesn't move on from these ideas. And so we're not going to move past them too quickly either. He uses language that reinforces these foundational ideas. And he gives us more. He gives us practical instruction today. But he wants us to take that practical instruction in light of what he believes are the big truths about our new identity and our new reality. So let's listen to our passage for today. This time I've highlighted some of that familiar language of those main points, just so we can see that it pops back up. 
This is 1 Peter 1, 17 through 23. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. The word of God for the people of God. In the very first verse, we bump back into familial language. Peter is reminding us that God is our family. He is our father. And he wants everything else we hear from him in this passage to be connected to that reality. So also what's important besides identity to Peter, it's inheritance. Both of those I words are really important in everything Peter has to say. And so 17, right off the bat, covers that identity piece. We belong to a father. And then verse 18 and verse 23 start talking about perishable and imperishable things. And that's supposed to remind us of our imperishable inheritance. Especially verse 18, which says that we have been liberated from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. That handed down to you from your ancestors, that's inheritance language right there, isn't it? So he's comparing right off the bat the normal earthly inheritance with the imperishable inheritance we've received. And verse 23 at the end of the passage also says in some of the most theological terms that we have this imperishable new inheritance because of Jesus, because of the new life he's given us through his new life. And so those are the pieces that Peter wants us to really understand along with the practical direction he gives. And we're really meant to understand this new life as a totally new reality. Scholars want us to know that when Peter says way of life, he's referring to cultural values and practices and norms, the whole kit and caboodle of how we understand and process our life in our cultural context. And the reality is he's calling that empty. The version we get from culture, he's, you know, that's a strong word. Empty is what he's calling that. Because when we're born into this new life in the kingdom of God, we get a whole new set of those things. Now it's the values and norms and practices of our Father's kingdom that is meant to really shape the way that we live our lives. Many of us have experienced a transition from one way to another way, even if on a small scale. Maybe you've changed jobs in the past. And maybe you transitioned into a new employment environment where the norms and the values were totally different than what you experienced before. You have to adapt and, and learn what it looks like to have a new daily routine so that you can be successful in your new role. Sometimes we also have moved cities or states or schools. And again, the values and norms and the expectations of how we're going to do things are different. When I went to Asbury University for college, our orientation right off the bat, first day, included that we were going to sit down on the floor of our residence hall and listen to our residence director present the community standards. That is the official language. And so those community standards, I have some other Asbury heads in the room nodding. You know exactly what I'm talking about. 
at the time I started, I don't think this is necessarily still the same, included that we were to dress with intention for class and chapel so that shorts, sweats, and pajamas were not allowed in either of those environments. That's one of the silly ones, right? But there were conduct expectations for on and off campus. They had lots to say about what it looked like to be an Asbarian. And regardless of where we came from or the way that we lived, we were invited from day one to get on board with the Asbarian way of life. The norms and the values of the school were meant to shape what we did every day. And in a similar way, the values of the kingdom of God are meant to shape our boots on the ground, everyday way of living. The values of our culture are ultimately perishable, and they often even lead to perishing. But the values of the kingdom way are imperishable. They lead us to a way of life that really is full, like God intends. One of the fading cultural values Peter calls out is wealth. Hence, he refers to silver and gold being perishable. You don't normally think about silver and gold as things that, like, you know, die and, and go away. But in his comparison, he's saying these are the empty things. These are the things that perish. They're not the things of God. And as appropriate as his reference probably was to the original context, maybe it's even more important for us to hear in our capitalistic culture that profit and production are not the values that define us. So instead, what is the way? What are the values of the kingdom of God? That's a really big question meant to shape the way we live our everyday life. And the story of Jesus' life as told in the Gospels does a really good job painting the picture, answering that question for us. The letters in the New Testament and their ethical teaching are all also trying to answer that question. And Peter, too, takes a stab at answering that question in his letter, the one that we're reading together over the next few weeks. He provides us with two really simple, very direct statements of ethical guidance. So I'm going to have um, the passage thrown up there again. We won't read the whole thing again, but I'm just wanting you to see the practical instructions highlighted in the passage. It's not a lot of the passage, right? Pretty simple, straightforward little sound bites. The rest of that is theological explanation and justification, which as I read it out, I hope you heard it was beautiful, talking about Jesus's life and all that it means for us. But the implications that it has for how we live, pretty Short, simple. Those two directions are live out your time as foreigners in reverent fear and love one another deeply. Interesting to note is the fact that Peter's practical guidance is just that. It's guidance. It's pretty general. Unlike my experience with the Asbury way, where I was given a very specific list of things that did and did not conform to the values, Peter gives us very general instructions. And in a teaching that Dr. Reese has published on 1 Peter, she shares the conviction that he does that, he gives general information, because get this, he's trusting the audience to receive these wisdom principles and use discernment to apply them. What will it look like to live in reverent fear and to love? Do you think it looks the same in every situation ever? No, probably not. That's where discernment comes in. So Peter is trusting that these members of God's family who have been filled up with God's life and his own spirit 
He's trusting that they can grow in discernment in real time as they work on these instructions together. And Dr. Reese's statement about Peter's intention for his audience actually jives pretty well with how we've come to understand the role of Scripture at Embrace. Scripture is not just a rule book, as many of us grew up thinking or fearing was the case. In fact, Scripture often does not give us nitty-gritty detail about everything we would ever need to know. Instead, Scripture gives us wisdom, wisdom principles, that we then, as we grow in God and as we grow and are transformed, we learn to discern and apply in cooperation with his spirit. But here's the kicker. With this trust that Peter is putting in the community, this sounds great. It's very honoring. But we have to remember that Peter is writing to the community as a whole. Peter gives them general instruction and trusts them to discern and work it out together. See, there is not a single one of us that is meant to figure out what the way of Jesus looks like on our own. But discernment happens in community. We learn to hear the voice of the Spirit and to know that it's actually the voice of the Spirit and not the voice of what we want when we talk about it together. And we learn discernment when we are willing to humble ourselves, hear each other, and offer and receive accountability. That's how we grow in discernment and how we apply wisdom principles. You know, I've often heard people say things like, I don't need to go to church to worship Jesus. And that's true. We can worship anywhere and everywhere. But that does not make the church irrelevant. We come together to worship regularly, not just because we're worshiping, but because this is a way for us to gather together and to meet with one another and to be committed to a journey of discipleship that really is defined by the fact that we are family. See, we can't live into our truest identity, member of the family of God, if we're cut off from the family. I will be the first one to tell you, if you've spent much time talking to me, you will know I am all about making the choice that is healthy, healing as you need to heal. So I believe it is really true that there are some seasons where we need to take a step back. Some of us need some breathing space. We might have been in a really dysfunctional expression of the family. We might be overwhelmed, we might be bruised and wounded, and we might just need to take a step back. But I also want you to know, as valid as that is, no one is meant to stay that way, isolated and cut off from the family. We are our truest selves together. We are our wisest selves together. So Peter gives general instruction to his audience, trusting them to apply it, because for him, together is a given. That means when we preach wisdom principles from the front, it's only the beginning of the conversation. Sunday morning gathering here to worship is only the beginning of the work that we do together to grow in everything God has for us. We're meant to continue talking about these wisdom principles, working them out in action, trial and error, growing pains and all, and getting better at it over time as we give each other grace, forgive one another, hold each other accountable. Today's wisdom principles, there's two of them in this specific passage, and we get to work on them together. They're simple, but they're profound. So a little bit more study can't hurt us in our ongoing work of discernment. After all, is anyone curious what it even means to live in reverent fear? It's kind of a weird phrase. 
a little bit clunky, doesn't show up in your daily vocab, I'm guessing. Well, to understand what we are being called to do here, we've got theological justification alongside that principle. So let's look at the sentence in full. Peter says, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Since is a really good clue word that we're being given a reason. So that's how we're supposed to understand, right? Since. And we are being told, again, the familial language, come back to it, God our Father. We're being told that our conduct of reverent fear is directly related to the character of our God who judges impartially. He's basically setting up a little equation here. Because X is true of your father, Y must be true of you. Well, when we look at this verse in context of the whole first chapter, we see a pretty major connection between God's character and our conduct has already been established. So that's verse 17, right? In verses 15 and 16, right before this one, we hear this. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. According to Dr. Reese, these two verses offer the thesis statement, means like the big point of the whole book of 1 Peter. Your father is holy, so you should also be holy. Be like your father. In other words, what it looks like for members of the family of God to live into their new identity is to look more and more like God. It's a relatively simple concept, but in the way that we live it out, This is actually a pretty sticky idea. Holiness is one of those words that can be kind of problematic to some of us. Depending on your tradition of origin, holiness might come with some baggage. Some of us have learned to attach to holiness ideas like works-based righteousness and legalism. We've been taught that holiness is doing certain things and not doing, usually a very specific list of other things. Is that holiness? Is that what Peter means? Or is it possible that verse 17, the very next verse, gives us some more insight into what holiness really is? It says, we call on a father who is holy. And verse 17 says, that holy father judges all people impartially. Peter wants us to know our father doesn't play favorites. He doesn't prefer people based on their power or their status or their relationship to anyone or anything else. He holds them accountable based simply on what they choose. In the patronage system of the ancient Greco-Roman world in which this audience lives, preferring people because of their power and their status is literally the basis of the entire socioeconomic order. Like, that's how life works. But this is the way of life that Peter is calling empty. God's way is different. God does not prefer the powerful. God does not care about people's social status or honor, but God judges all people impartially. Does it sound a little bit to you like maybe a central aspect of God's character is justice? Is it possible that while many of us have been told that holiness is some sort of righteousness lived out in perfect performance, it's actually more closely tied to just action and an equal valuing of all people. Be holy as I am holy. Be just as I am just. 
be like her father. In one sense, because of its surrounding context, we could read the verse and say, okay, our conduct needs to look exactly like God. But the equation changes a little bit, right? It's not X, so X. It's X, so Y. And we're being told not only should our conduct look like God's, but there's a further statement here. We're also to live in reverent fear. And I just want to say I think that phrase is a caution. It's a warning for these people who know now that they are chosen to not think that that chosenness as God's family gives them preference or favoritism or even a pass, right? I think he's wanting them to know that they can't have actions or heart postures that devalue other people and expect to get away with it just because they, like, belong to God, right? They don't have any favoritism or preference in that way. Instead, because God is their father, since God is their father, they should live in reverent fear or with an expectation that God is going to hold them to account to be and look and act like him. So the wisdom principle Peter offers us then is that we are to take seriously our new identity as members of the family of God. And it places implications on our conduct. We belong to God. So we are to act and look and be more and more like our good and just God. I can't help but be reminded of Micah 6, 8 here. And to see an incredible connection between what God calls his people to in the Old Testament and what he's now calling his church to in the New Testament. I love to see the whole scriptural story connect. And it does. Do you guys remember that verse? Let's throw it up here. It says, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. In all the theology Peter offers as reasoning in this passage, I believe he's trying to help them to see and love the mercy that they have been given. This new identity, this imperishable inheritance, it's gift, not by their own efforts. In no way have they earned it. It is a gift of God's mercy through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in light of that mercy, he calls them to act justly, just like their father does. And then that statement about reverent fear, that's really humility, isn't it? So he's calling them to love the mercy they've been given, to act justly because of it, and then live humbly in reverent fear that their calling and their actions really do matter. The whole biblical witness agrees. That's good news, y'all. Maybe this new way is actually kind of an ancient calling that we get to participate in. There's one more directive for us, and it comes close to the end of the passage. And yet again, it sounds a lot like what we find in the rest of Scripture. We hear, love one another deeply from the heart. That's verse 22. And again, that instruction comes after a little bit of introductory theological reasoning. Last time, the theological reasoning was supposed to give us a little bit of caution. This time, I think the role is encouragement. We're meant to be encouraged. So let's hear the whole of verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, Love one another deeply from the heart. Peter's encouragement and good news connected to the command to love each other is that his audience already has the love they need. It's already there. He is writing to them not only trusting that they're working it out together, that they will work it out together, but trusting that their journey of discipleship is already in progress. They're already asking what it looks like 
to be like God. They're already working it out. They're already trying to do the things that Jesus did, right? How many times have you heard a sermon that assumes you're starting at square one every day that you wake up? Like you've never made any progress. You've just got this list of to-dos. It's a burden you've got to put on yourself. Maybe someday you'll figure some of it out. That is not Peter's sermon, and that's not this one, to be honest. We don't start at square one every day. We're a work in progress. We've already started this journey. And Peter says because that is true, because this community has already been obeying the call to look and be and act more like their father, they're being transformed. It's happening. And what is the fruit of that transformation? None other than sincere love. So it's from that wellspring that's just bubbling up within them as a natural consequence of them trying to live the new way. It's from that source that they are to love one another deeply as family. And friends, we are also to love one another. And the good news is we have the love we need. We're not starting at square one. We're not trying to make ourselves love each other. As we walk in obedience, we are being transformed. We might want to ask, though, what does loving deeply look like, right? Practically, how do you live that out? Well, Peter doesn't give us a list, at least not here. He offers some suggestions later, and we'll get to those at some point. But again, the whole New Testament witness offers us some really great ideas. As food for our discernment and conversations, we can hear from several other parts of the New Testament. Loving each other deeply looks like honoring one another above ourselves. That's Romans. Forgiving each other and seeking forgiveness when we are wrong. Ephesians. Carrying one another's burdens. Sitting with one another in grief. Galatians. Sharing and redistributing resources. That's Acts 2. And persevering together and for each other in prayer. Ephesians. I could go on. It's a really big theme in the New Testament. But over and over again, loving one another deeply looks like sacrifice and solidarity and celebration. It's good, too. It's enjoyable also. And it's commitment to the ongoing work of showing up and being family. It's a beautiful mess sometimes, but we are meant to be family, especially in light of our differences. There are countless examples in Scripture of ways that we can love one another. Discern together which way you need for which moment. That's Peter's message to the congregation. Work it out together. After all, who are we? Chosen and beloved members of the family of God. What is our calling? To be and act and look like our good, just, loving God. It's a serious calling. One Peter tells us to take seriously. But we are also to be encouraged. Even when that feels like a heavy calling, even when it's difficult, even when it steps on our toes and we're uncomfortable, we're to be encouraged because we don't walk the new way alone. We walk it with one another and with our Father. And as we obey this command, as we try to follow Jesus and show up and learn how to be family and learn how to look more like God, we are being transformed and poured into our hearts from the abundant, boundless supply of our Father is the love we need to love one another deeply, just as he loves us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.